and welcome to Books for Your Library, a literary podcast where today I'm talking with Alexander McCall-Smith, who is without doubt one of the world's most prolific and best-loved contemporary writers. This season, he's achieved a new personal record by having no less than four brand new books being released, and it's these new titles we'll be talking about in this podcast. For many years, my guest was a professor of medical law and worked in the universities in the UK and abroad before he turned his hand to writing fiction. Since his first book, The White Hippo, was published in 1980 by Hamish Hamilton, he's written over a hundred books, including long-running mystery series, standalone novels and popular children's books. But it wasn't until the first volume of the highly successful Number One Ladies Detective Agency series was published back in 1998 that Alexander became a full-time writer. Over the last 22 years, these Botswana-set stories have sold over 20 million copies in the English language alone. I'm looking forward to finding out whether it was a personal experience that inspired his 21st title in this series, called How to Raise an Elephant, published by Little Brown. As his fans will be aware, in addition to the best-selling number one Ladies Detective Agency series, Mysteries, Alexander also writes several other series of books, such as the Isabel Dalhousie novels, Corduroy Mansions, The Talented Mr. Varg, Professor von Ingelfeld, and of course 44 Scotland Street, set in his beloved Edinburgh. The 14th book in the Scotland Street series is tantalisingly entitled A Promise of Ankles, and this is one of the books we'll be talking about today. Not just a writer of fiction, Alexander's also written a libretto and contributed to a number of academic papers too. But it is his astute observation of human nature, resulting in the creation of such convincing characters that I believe we enjoy reading his story so much. His skill is no better demonstrated than in the short story format, where characters by a less accomplished writer can often appear less than three-dimensional. His latest collection of short stories is called Tiny Tales, and the publication also includes a number of really short stories in a comic strip format which he's co-created with illustrator Ian McIntosh. Until this year, Alexander's poetry was largely unknown to his fans, but last March he read his poem In a Time of Distance on BBC Radio 4, It was written in response to the global pandemic and this autumn a poetry collection of the same name has been published by Polygon. The capacity his writing has to touch people is extraordinary, so it's no surprise that his poetry resonated with the huge number of people that it did. Alexander has received numerous awards for his writing and holds no less than 12 honorary doctorates. In 2007 he received a CBE for his services to literature from the Queen And in 2011, he was honoured by the President of Botswana for services through literature to the country. It is with the greatest of pleasure I welcome him to this podcast. Welcome, Alexander. Hello, Sarah. You're in Edinburgh, I believe. Is that right? I'm in Edinburgh, yes. I spend most of my time in Edinburgh. This is where I live. I also spend a fair amount of time, uh, obviously, travelling. When travelling is permitted, I go to book festivals and book events all over the place, really. And I spend a lot of time uh, over in the west coast of Scotland in Argyle. Um, I'm very keen on that part of the world. And uh, I sail there. I have a boat. And uh, so uh, that's where I spend my time. But Edinburgh is home. And this is where I do most of my writing. I would like to invite you to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. I don't. I know from what I've read about you that you make an early start with your writing so I'm sure you're ready for some sort of refreshment what would you choose that to be? Well I I actually have a a cup of coffee with me at the moment which is a a latte I rather like uh, the the milky coffee 
Um, I love it when, when I'm in France and you get that beautiful uh, café au lait in the, in the the big bowls they drink it out of. I think that's a wonderful product of French uh, civilization. Uh, but I also like tea. Uh, I drink um, quite a bit of tea, Redbush tea, or rooibos tea as it's known. Uh, that's, a, uh, I find, a very refreshing brew. Uh, that's what Mara Matsui drinks in the number one ladies' detection. And I was introduced to that tea many years ago, and uh, I put it into the first book in that particular series. I had Mara Matsui sitting down and drinking cups of Redbush tea at every opportunity. And I had a letter from the the people who make Redbush tea, uh, it only really grows in, in one particular part of the world, right down at the tip of Southern Africa. And uh, they wrote and said, thank you so much for having Maramatsui uh, drinking that tea, because it had done uh, wonders for uh, Redbush tea sales, which I was very pleased about, because uh, Redbush tea is not only harmless, it's good for you. I'm a great fan of the cheese scone. I don't like the sweet scones. So cheese scones... Um, are terrific because they uh, are savoury, and um, I find a cheese scone a, a very, a very nice thing indeed. And I do make them. I put cayenne pepper into them, and that gives a cheese scone uh, a bit of a kick. Um, and uh, I've used that uh, recipe in the latest Scotland Street book. Somebody talks about cheese scones. Usually, if you look at my books, you can work out roughly what I'm interested in, uh, or where I've been, what I've been doing, because I tend to tend to bring that into the book at a particular time. So I must have just baked a batch of cheese scones when I was writing that particular chapter. And lo and behold, cheese scones appear in the book. I can picture you there with your with your latte and uh, your your cheese scone. And if we could then just have a chat about the um, Scotland Street book, which is called Promise of Ankles. And that's quite a an interesting title because I when I first uh, looked at it, I was assuming it was from a human perspective. And of course, it isn't, is it? No, that's right. It, it, it is a rather unusual title. My titles are the product of discussions that I have with my editors. Uh, in this particular case, the discussion was with my editor and my agent in New York. And um, I think it was my editor there who suggested um, that we should put ankles into the, into the, uh, the title, uh, because uh, originally I, I wanted a title which had a promise of something else, and we were trying to work out what the promise would be. And it was suggested that ankles should come in there. And of course, it does have something to do with the uh, plot of that uh, book, because in the Scotland Street series, there's a very popular dog. Uh, he has a lot of followers uh, called Cyril, and he's the only dog in Scotland uh, with a gold tooth. And uh, he's quite a character. And, and Cyril's problem in this life, his moral difficulty, his moral dilemma, is whether or not to bite, bite ankles. He, <laughs> he loves the thought of just a little nip, not a hostile or a aggressive bite, but just a little nip, nip of attempting set of ankles. And he knows, of course, if he does that, uh, he will be uh, subjected to all sorts of unpleasant recriminations. And so uh, he battles with his, his, his conscience. With Scotland Street, uh, Cyril is, is a character that will be familiar to the fans uh, of the series, but there are always new characters being introduced. For example, Josephine in this one, uh, the Danish au pair. And what I wanted to ask you is whether when you introduce characters, you always have a sense of how they're going to fit into the bigger picture, not just in this particular book, but also in forthcoming books. 
Well, I, I tend not to have a, a character's life planned for for the for the particular character. Uh, I know that there are authors whose plotting is is very um, meticulous and uh, who have um, worked out exactly what is going to happen in every corner of the book, so to speak. Uh, I'm not one of those. So my books change shape as I write them. They're, they're fairly organic in that in that sense. And things can happen in the book that I had no idea would happen. Uh, that, I think, is because fiction comes from um, the uh, uh, subconscious part of the mind to, to a very great extent. And so the mind is always investigating possibilities and coming up with ideas as to what might happen. And that happens with uh, characters. So you can introduce a character and lo and behold, the character can then go and do things that surprise you that you hadn't planned for that particular character. Uh, so uh, to a certain extent, the, the characters lead their own lives. Now, of course, their lives are controlled by one's subconscious imagination uh, and uh, uh, also the, 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 the conscious part of one's mind will play a major role in, in deciding what they do. But in the background, they, they, they have that they have that freedom in a sense. You could use the word freedom. You've got so many different series. And I, I wondered whether, because there must be inevitably a sense of overlap at some point, whether when you wake on a morning, you feel in the mood to develop one particular storyline and go with that sense, or whether it's much more a sense of I've got a deadline, I need to work for this, I'm focusing on this particular story to get it to a yes. certain stage. Well, yeah, I think that uh, I've, I find that um, I do uh, obviously have to uh, have an idea of what I have to write during a particular time, uh, because I do five or six books a year, and therefore there is a schedule that has to be, um, has to be paid attention to. Having said that, uh, the process of um, composition itself uh, is, is a fairly relaxed one. Um, I know that I have to work on a book every day, for example, if I've got to finish a book um, by a certain date. And of course, publishers require one to do that. I therefore know that I must spend two or three hours um, at least working on that book uh, that day. Uh, so there's that element of uh, compulsion or, or schedule or whatever you want to call it. There, within that, though, it's, it's very relaxed. And um, it's not, uh, it's not a, 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 a tense period for me at all. Uh, I'll sit at the, uh, at the, the keyboard of the, of the computer on which I compose uh, these things. And um, I find that I don't really have to think um, a great deal uh, because uh, the thinking is, is done at a subconscious level or has been done before that. And so uh, I, I just sit there and, and it comes out. Uh, and it, it comes out at, at, at quite a rate, really. I, um, I write about a thousand words an hour, and um, I very rarely have to do anything to that. It, it comes out in its final, its final form. One of the other books we're going to be talking about is your first poetry collection, In a Time of Distance. Mm -hmm. And I wondered whether the same applied for, for the poetry. Does that also come out as fast and as spontaneously or is there more a sense of having to let ideas be processed moments in time dwell and then 
reflect upon it and then and then sort of perhaps write more with sort of traditionally with sort of pen and paper in a, in a different environment is there a difference with when writing poetry yes poetry is 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 different and i i think that uh, i write poetry in in a slightly different way from the way in which i i write the novels or the short stories whatever uh with poetry uh i think uh, there tends to be um, a central image or idea which uh, dominates uh, that particular poem, which will get you going. Of course, uh, the content of the poem may change, I find, as, as, as I write it. With poetry, there may be an idea, something you see, some, something somebody says, some thought um, or insight, perhaps, if one's going to use such that term. If, if you have that, uh, that might brew away in the background and then suddenly the poem will, will come out. I can write poetry to order. I can sit down, I find, and write a complete poem in, in a single uh, sitting and, and, and I suppose quite quickly. Uh, so it's, it, it's just a question of, of um, beginning it. Uh, and then I find that it pretty much writes its, itself. So most of my poems are written in a single uh, sitting and uh, they, uh, they, they, they emerge uh, really very quickly. So I might write, write a, a poem, page length poem in, in five minutes or something of that sort, just it, come, it comes out. It's as if I'm, I'm hearing a, a tune in my, my head and I'm just recording it. And that, that I think is, is, is how many com composers of music will work as well. Uh, they, they, they hear something, they hear a, a particular melody or whatever it is, and then it's just a question of, of putting it down on paper. And that's the case with, with poetry, with my, my, my poetry, I find. There are examples in, in my recent uh, book, my new, new book of poetry, In a Time of Distance, there, there are examples of poems uh, which have been there for a long time, in that the thought behind them has been there for a long time. Uh, it's something that I've seen or thought about a long many years ago, perhaps, uh, and then eventually I get get uh, get get round to, to to writing. But most of them are written in fairly immediate response to something that I've um, that I've seen. So, uh, for example, there's a there's a poem in this in this collection uh, called "The Language of Pilots," uh, and that was written on an aeroplane when I was. Uh, reflecting on the language which uh, is used in aviation by the pilots and the and the um, cabin staff, cabin crew, the way they they speak, uh, there's a vocabulary uh, which is characteristic of uh, of the, that world, and it's fairly straightforward. It obviously has to be something which is readily comprehensible. Uh, sometimes it feels though. Uh, that it's not ordinary human speech. It's not the way that uh, you and I will talk to one another. So, for example, uh, circumlocutions are, are used. There seems to be an objection to using uh, the very nice and functional word now. And it's all at this time. Uh, and then the curious grammatical uh, constructions. Uh, we are landing into Edinburgh. Uh, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't think into is quite the right uh, word there. And so all of that is 
is going. It's quite mechanical speech, uh, which is uh, uh, something which I, I don't particularly like. And I was sitting in the plane and I thought, what if a pilot, uh, when addressing uh, the passengers, used poetic images, used um, more beautiful speech in what he had to say? Uh, what would it sound like? And so I wrote a poem there and then called The Language of Pilots, which I'd like to read. I'd love you to read it. Thank you. So uh, here we go. The Language of Pilots. That's the background to it. And it was written in a plane when I'd been listening to these announcements made in this curious, rather artificial, rather mechanistic language. The Language of Pilots. They speak with high authority. Elrons and wings responsive to their touch. Their words are functional too. But why, I wonder, should a pilot not be a pert too and say, we now descend at last through banks of cloud, white fields as wide as any ocean, at least when viewed from where we are, at least when viewed from the suspended point, for it is Bermele's principle that lifts and keeps us here between the patient earth below and this empty, soaring sky. Ladies and gentlemen, rain falls in distant veils. Look from your windows to the starboard side of this metal tube we call an aircraft. Look out there and see the rain, the gray-white shafts of rain. Do you know that those wisps of cloud you see up above are crystals of ice falling like gossamer? Did you know that? Now, please, about your waist to fix the belts you must, as slowly towards the earth we drop to lands embrace your belts adjust. We are a little late, but what are a few minutes, nothing more? Here and there. Not much, I think. Goodbye, and take with you the things you brought, your few possessions. Goodbye until we meet again, and once more we carry you on wings of steel, on wings of steel to places you would wish to go. Goodbye, dear friends. It matters not whether you're a member of the loyalty scheme we've got. We love you all, as parents love their children equally. Remember that, and please come back. Goodbye again. And cabin crew, unbar the doors. Let light be seen. Secure what needs securing, and cross-check whatever that may mean. Goodbye, for soon, these great engines on landing will be silenced, as will I. <laughs> a great improvement on what we normally listen to, I think, as passengers. It is a nice idea that there would be this pilot using this, 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 this very uh, flowery, poetic language and talking about shifting veils of rain and, and great wings of steel. Why not? Why not? Yeah, but cross-check just has no alternative. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, see, nobody ever says cross-check, except on airplanes. And we don't really know what it means. Well, I've, I've worked out what it means, but most of us don't know what it what it means. What, what is cross-checking? Uh, I'd love to be able to cross-check something, but I've never had the opportunity. Well, that, that was lovely. Thank you. And uh, and I think some of some of the listeners today will be familiar with the, the title poem, In a Time of Distance, which was read out uh, on BBC Radio 4 in March, just as the the world was descending into a tight lockdown. And there was a huge response, certainly when that was posted on uh, your Facebook page. And I wondered whether that response, because the poem clearly resonated with people at that particular time, whether their res overwhelming response was a surprise to you. 
Yes, it was, uh, Sarah, because um, I had been asked to do this um, poem for the, for the BBC, and uh, I found that uh, we were living then, um, and to a certain extent still are, in a, in a rather strange time when many people have a sense of distance between them and, and the familiar, a familiar world, people they know, and so on. We're all quite isolated for obvious reasons. And uh, I wanted to talk um, about that and talk about people's feelings uh, and how many people feel that after this experience of um, isolation and separation during uh, this pandemic, uh, that they will somehow be different, that their lives will be different. Now, in many cases, unfortunately, uh, people's lives are being changed for the worse uh, by what has happened. Uh, and obviously that, that's a, a very sad development. But there are others uh, who, who will find that they're obliged to slow down a bit and to reflect. They're given more opportunities to, uh, to think because they aren't rushing around to quite the same extent that they used to. And I think the, the, those people, uh, many of them, uh, feel that they, they have in some sense been changed by this uh, experience, as if they've been sent off to a monastery for a couple of weeks to be, to be away from uh, the rough and tumble of life. So this poem uh, talks about that uh, sense of distance that, that, that people have had and, and the um, uh, feeling um, that, the feelings that it gave rise to. I think we, we appreciated our friends more we appreciated family more. Uh, we appreciated many of the simple things of life. We heard and saw things that we'd been too busy to hear and see before. And uh, that poem uh, talks about that. And yes, it, it, was, very, uh, it was very kindly received by, by many people who, who, who seemed to, to feel that they could identify with the, with the, the uh, sentiments behind it. So I was surprised. Um, at its uh, impact. But that, I think, perhaps shouldn't surprise one that poetry can, uh, can speak in that way to, to, to us, uh, because uh, poetry is, is, is language distilled. Uh, so uh, it's, it's not uh, perhaps surprising that, that uh, people should turn to poetry in uh, such times. I, I was rather interested to make the comparison um, with what happened, um, it will obviously my, my poem can't stand in the same company as this, another great, great poem that I was about to mention. But, but that same phenomenon of people being being um, prepared to to listen to what a poem has to say about their situation there and there, that happened in New York after the attack on the Twin Towers uh, all those years ago. Mm -hmm. In that, uh, people in New York uh, were were faxing. Uh, uh, faxes being uh, more commonly used in those days, were faxing copies of W.H. Auden's poem, uh, September the 1st, 1939. Uh, this was a poem that Auden wrote um, on the outbreak of, of, of um, hostilities in, in Western Europe and the beginning of the Second World War. And he starts off by placing himself in one of the dives in... Uh, in New York and Manhattan, sitting at a bar, and uh, he reflects on the darkness uh, that he sees descending on humanity 
on that particular date. It's a very, very powerful poem. It's a poem which, interestingly enough, Auden discerned uh, because he felt um, that it wasn't uh, sincere or truthful. Uh, and yet, uh, like another poem that he discerned for similar reasons, his great poem about Spain, this is uh, a poem that uh, his readership has doggedly held on to. And it was very interesting that hundreds of people responded, I don't know how many, obviously, there could have been thousands possibly, responded to Auden's poem and were showing it to one another and um, talking about it and gave them comfort. So poetry can have, um, can touch, uh, touch a nerve in, yep. in difficult circumstances. And certainly... Some of the some of the book the poems in this in this collection, which is a lovely hardback edition with an illustration from your uh, friend, uh, the Scottish um, artist in Macintosh, um, and some of them are very personal and very intimate. But there are some that are more comic and uplifting, and there's a there's a real breadth of content in there and subject matter. There's there's animals, there's travel, there's a real sense of you taking the reader on a tour, I think, through the collection, which I think is also lovely for this particular time when we when we can't travel in the way that we once did. Yes, many of the poems, well, thank you for your generous words. There. Many of the poems are about, about places, and uh, I explain in the book um, how they came about. Um, so, for example, there's, uh, there's a, a poem about mustard fields in Rajasthan in India. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I was walking through the countryside in Rajasthan and came across this very large mustard field. They grew a lot of mustard there. And in the middle of this mustard field, surrounded by the, by, by all these uh, this crop, were uh, a couple of tiny temples. And it looked to me as if they'd been planted there, uh, that they'd grown up uh, along with the mustard. And so the poem reflects on, on, on that. And um, what the poem says is... Um, bear in mind when you plant your mustard that you may also be growing a couple of temples uh, as well, <laughs> you know, temple seeds included. Now, uh, obviously that, that poem wouldn't make all that much sense to uh, somebody reading it cold, so to speak, out of context. So throughout this book, I've said, um, this, is, this is how this came about. Uh, this is how it happened. Yeah, I love this that. Another Indian poem there when I was uh, in India visiting an old temple site. And um, I'm very uh, interested in what notices say, because I think notices can say all sorts of poetic uh, poetic things. And uh, there in this uh, site of uh, ruined temples, uh, frequented by monkeys, uh, very few people, uh, but lots of um, rather territorial monkeys, more or less coming and uh, telling one one shouldn't intrude. There was a sign, uh, it was a, a site of, uh, protected by the, the local conservation authorities, and there was a sign that they put up, a metal sign, which said, protect your heritage and feel glorious. And that's a <laughs> lovely, lovely line. And I think the National Trust, uh, the National Trust in England and the National Trust in Scotland, should put signs like that up at their properties, protect your heritage and feel glorious. Because... Feeling glorious is something that um, many of us don't really bother to do, uh, but that's how we should feel. 
And it's different from feeling impressed or feeling pleased or whatever. Feeling glorious is a wonderful uh, feeling. Uh, and I think we know what it means, but we need to be told to feel glorious at appropriate uh, appropriate moments. I think that's a so, wonderful idea, um, yes. Signs, yes. I mean, I, I, look, I look for signs and uh, I find some lovely signs. I found a sign in Caribbean on the island of Martinique uh, visiting botanical gardens there. And there was a, a small cliff that you obviously had to be very careful not to fall over. And the um, botanical garden authorities had put up a sign uh, warning you um, uh, that the fence that they had erected wasn't all that uh, good at stopping people from falling over. And it said um, in French, uh, don't lean against this. But they translated that into English as well. And they translated as, it has, do not lean again. They meant do not lean against, but we had do not lean again. And that struck me as, as having immense poetic possibilities. And I went straight back to the car in the car park and wrote a poem called Do Not Lean Again, saying how you can lean on people when you need their support and their encouragement, but don't lean on them too often. Or not, <laughs> not repeatedly in any event. Not repeatedly. <laughs> and, not repeatedly. And the, um, that, that's a poem that you've just admitted that you was very spontaneous. You saw the sign, you sat down, you wrote it out finished and that must be very pleasing but there's the there's another one that I like in the in the collection called a washing line outside a croft house which I think was yes. also the is is uh, represented on the front cover by Ian's illustration and there's a lovely description before that poem about your journey along the the coastal road and then seeing the the washing out on the line and I don't think the family who lived there were known to you this was complete strangers but you just yes. sort of observed yeah. a, a scene and I get the impression that the, the poem wasn't written for a little while afterwards is that right? So that, that, that's right. Uh, that, that poem took a, a long time to emerge. Um, it's many, many years ago, and we were driving along this, this road in a very remote part of the Western Highlands, and we went past a croft house um, off the road with its fields about it. And I noticed that the, 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 the people living uh, in, this, uh, in this croft had washed a suit and hung the suit out to dry on the washing line. And the wind had come up and had had caught the arms and legs of the suit, and uh, it was dancing in this in this wind, and uh, it was a uh, something that became etched in my mind that visual memory. So often we look at things and we uh, we don't uh, we don't remember them. Obviously, we can't remember everything, but every so often uh, we see something that is recorded most firmly in our memory, um, a particular site. We all have moments of that. Or we may remember somebody making a remark, which they may have forgotten because it's many years ago and may have been a remark of no particular importance. But we remember it very clearly. Human memory is a very peculiar, <laughs> peculiar thing. So I saw that, and um, many years later I wrote a poem. It's a short poem, so I'll read it now. A washing line outside a croft house. Here on a line outside a croft, a suit has been hung, a dark suit, old-fashioned, the wear of some older man for the regulated Sunday of a Highland Kirk. Its arms filled with wind, beat time, remind us of half-remembered rhythms, remind us of the line of green between the sea 
and the land between the sea, that strip of flowers and of whitened shells they called Macher. Remind us of that beat of the heart that is this land, the unexpected vision, the simple facts of being. That image of the suit on the line becomes uh, mixed up there with an image of the coast beyond that particular scene, uh, which is uh, so beautiful. Uh, there's a particular form of habitat, so to speak, in um, uh, Scotland, a coastal habitat for the birds and whatnot, uh, called Macher, which is a lovely little uh, plain between the, the beach and the, and, the, and the land, so to speak, uh, where there's grass and wildflowers and um, the, the, the soil is composed of uh, largely of broken shells. So it's, it's white, the Macher tends to be white. And it's very, very beautiful, very, very beautiful. And to see that with beyond it, the, the green um, Hebridean Sea, is uh, is a lovely is a lovely and was was there a blue sky that day as well there was because i do remember the landscape being being lit in in, in gold uh, i remember that very uh, so uh, of course when we remember things that uh, strike us as beautiful we often paint in the sun even if the sun wasn't there <laughs> the, the the mind will say oh, yes it must have been sunny as well but it, but it was. And uh, Ian, who's done the illustration on that cover, he's also done the illustration on the third book I wanted to talk about, which is Tiny Tales, which is an, another little hardback publication, came to life this this summer. And it contains 30 short stories and then a series of, don't really know how to describe them really, they're sort of two over two almost like a window pane. There's four four illustrations telling a story and almost like a sort of a, a graphic novel, aren't they, really? Well, graphic short story. Graphic I think short story, graphic yeah. Graphic short story, yes. And what I was curious to understand is the collaborative process that you worked on together. Well, Ian McIntosh and I have worked together for many, many years. Uh, he's a wonderful illustrator. He is, I think, the, the most distinguished uh, illustrator that we have in, in Scotland. And he does marvellous woodcut-type illustrations. So if you like Revillius or Borden, uh, then you very much would like Ian McIntosh's illustrations. He's a very versatile illustrator. Mm -hmm. Illustrator with a great sense of fun as well. He can do very, very amusing uh, illustrations. And um, what happened here was that uh, I had decided to write a volume of extremely short stories most of the ones, the text ones, uh, that's the non-illustrated ones, mm -hmm. non-illustrated ones, are uh, anywhere between, say, 800 and 1,500 or 2,000 words. So they may be two pages or they may be six pages long, not much more than that. So they are very short. And uh, I think that you can paint a whole world. Uh, you can say a lot uh, in, in a very small uh, space. And uh, that's what these stories intend to do. Well, you definitely, so. you definitely can if you have skill. I don't think all of us could, but um, well, you certainly well. managed to capture <laughs> whole characters tough. in just a few words. Well, I think, I think, I think uh, one can do that. Eh? And it's not impossible to create a fictional character and the fictional character's whole world uh, with a few uh, brushstrokes. You, you could describe something about them which will 
will be suggestive of a background, of a particular background. So, for example, in the Number One Ladies Detective Agency uh, series, there's Mara Makutsi, who's Mara Motsby's um, uh, assistant, sidekick. And I think in the earlier books that uh, we, we were able to uh, to get a, quite a good idea of, 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 of her and what, what her values are by uh, just concentrating uh, on the fact that she had uh, a very small lace handkerchief, rather head threadbare lace handkerchief, which she was very fond of. Now, that, that's one level, that's just a handkerchief that she has. But another level, uh, it, talk, it says something about her aesthetic ambitions. It talks about what, what is important to her, that she wants some beauty in her life and mm -hmm. that she's had comes from a poor background where she hasn't had very much. So the handkerchief really uh, assumes a terrific symbolic importance. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, uh, she, she likes uh, to have uh, attractive shoes. And so the shoes can, can say a great deal about it, uh, a character, the importance that a character um, attributes to, to, to having nice shoes will say something about ambition, um, what that character wants in life, what their values are. Uh, so um, you can do that. And the short stories, short stories do that. With Ian, the illustrated stories, which are four panels, four separate illustrations, rather like a comic strip in a, in a newspaper, that sort of thing, uh, or a graphic novel in, mm -hmm. in boiled down to, to, to four panels, uh, we have a little bit of text in each panel. The whole thing is probably only two or three sentences, uh, but, but there are words in each panel. Uh, and then he illustrates uh, the story um, in, in that way. So you can read it from, from start to finish and you get the whole... And there's a narrative, isn't there? It's very short, there's but there narrative. is a narrative. There's a, the, 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 there's a narrative. And um, that was tremendous fun. And the way, in, the way it worked was that I would write the, the text, which, of course, in the case of the, the illustrated stories, was very, very small. I'd write the text and then um, say to Ian, um, panel one, could you, we put these words there, could you illustrate roughly um, somebody doing something like that? So, so you had a vision of what the, the artwork would, would look like? Uh, yes, of the basic ingredients of each yeah. panel. But then uh, he would interpret that very imaginatively and would add all sorts of detail, uh, which would... Um, really enrich the, the narrative. So uh, it was a, a, a proper collaboration. And then the other stories, which are the text stories, that's just me, Ian, hasn't been involved in that. And they're, uh, they're just these little vignettes of, of life and uh, people's doings, and often uh, sometimes almost verging on the ridiculous. As one, the, the first story is about um, a young woman who, who, who um, decides that she's going to do a parachute jump. And her friend says, what do you want to do that for? And she says, well, you know, you know, I need to meet more people. And the friend says, well, you don't, you don't meet people on a parachute jump. Ah, that's where she's wrong, you see, because she goes along to the parachute club. And uh, for this jump, your first jump, you're strapped to the instructor. You know how they strap you. Mm -hmm. And then they go down, you go down on a single parachute. And the instructor, one hopes, pulls the, pulls the, um, the ripcord. So she goes up, she sees as a very, very dishy instructor, very handsome instructor there. And so she's delighted that she's allocated to him. And of course, she's in due course strapped to him. 
and up they go in the plane and they make their descent and he brings her down safely. She's very relieved and she looks up into his very handsome eyes and uh, he says, um, let's go and have a cup of coffee, but let's not bother to unstrap just yet. And so they go off and you can imagine him walking and she's sort of being supported, <laughs> taking off coffee. And they spend the whole day strapped together. And of course, that uh, that uh, leads to a, a very happy ending in romantic terms. <laughs> Ridiculous story, but what fun. <laughs> but, but that and in fact, the whole collection is perfect for this particular period of time when I've heard a lot of readers say that although they've had more time on their hands to read, they've really struggled to somehow focus on a on a full length story and They've been a little bit frustrated that they were expecting to get through all this backlist of books that they wanted yes. to read, but have then ended up distracted, I think, partly with the uncertainty of the situation we found ourselves in and that sort of underlying angst. And I think this collection means that you can dive into it. You don't have to read it from from front to back. You can dip into it when you pause to have a, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or just take a little break, a little bit of escapism and enter into the world of these these characters. There's, there's, there's nothing not to like about them. It's just lovely. And my, my favourite one, I have to say, is the, the handbag where the, the mother and son are, are, are united in very curious circumstances. But there's a, there's a positivity there as well. And it's just they're charming, Alexander. I really enjoyed well, them. Well, uh, very, very kind to, to say that, Sarah. I had great fun writing them. Uh, the, about five or six stories about the first Australian Pope, Pope Ron. And I loved writing about Pope Ron. And I'd, I'd love to spend more time in his company. He's a very nice Well, maybe, maybe you will. Well, Pope Ron, yes, I could write his, his, full, his full story. But uh, no, I've, I've, I so enjoyed writing these. And were they written this summer when they were published in the Financial Times? Or they, have they been uh, collected over a longer period of time? They were written, um, I'm trying to remember, they would have been written within the last year or so. So I would have been writing them at the beginning of the, still writing them at the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. um, probably carried on until, yeah, probably carried on writing them into March or something like that. They then, the, the illustrated versions then ran in the Financial Times for a number of months. Uh, yeah. And now we have the book. Oh, it was uh, just the illustrated ones that were published. Yes. So yes, the, the, the collection of 30 uh, haven't been seen before outside of this They haven't been seen before. Oh. The, uh, the, the illustrated ones were published week by week in the Saturday Financial Times and the text ones, uh, this is their first publication. Well, I've, I've photographed some of the illustrated ones and put them up on the website so readers can understand. I don't feel as though I've done them justice, but um, they are, well, they're, they're brilliant. They're, they're, they're really well, good. Well, you're fun. very kind. Thank you. And Thank you. Uh, for someone who's clearly so... Uh, what's the word? Perceptive and interested in in human behaviour and draws on lots of different sort of experiences and observations to then feed into all the different characters that you're creating over a number of series and and in the standalone books and in the short stories. I wondered how how you're managing to fuel that when you're much more isolated in Edinburgh. Well, I think that. Uh... Obviously, in the, in the past, I've always obtained inspiration and uh, information um, in my various um, travels or engagements with uh, 
with, with, with people. Isolation puts a stop to all of that. Um, but I find that I've got enough in the memory bank, so to speak, to keep me going, in that I think as you go through life, you absorb a lot about the world and about the people you meet. If you um, listen to what people are saying over the years, you get an idea of, of um, uh, how people think and their speech patterns and, and so on. And so you end up having a lot of memories in which to draw. And of course, your imagination then can get to work on those. So I haven't found myself feeling at all deprived during this period. Probably on the contrary, I've uh, found it a time when I've been able to do much more reflecting on things. And I think that that has produced, produced, um, I suppose, um, certain, uh, certain things in my, my, my mind, certain thoughts, uh, which I've been able to use in the books and short stories. So no, it, it, it hasn't been a difficult time from that point of view for me. In fact, really, uh, the, the old expression, absence makes the heart grow fonder, uh, probably a, applies here that as we're cut off from so many things that we used to have, uh, we um, now can picture them more clearly. Clearly, we pay more attention to them. Mm-hmm. And we probably also become fonder of them as well. I value them more, yeah. And uh, the last book I wanted to talk about, the, the 21st book in the number one Ladies Detective Agency series called How to Raise an Elephant. That must have been written a little bit of time ago for it to have been now in print. I wondered whether it was reassuring to be able to immerse yourself in a world where the characters must feel like old friends, do they? Yes, they do. Uh, That's 21 books um, spent with the same characters. 22 years. Uh, uh, So over 20 years. And that's uh, really quite, um, you get very used to the characters. You, You get fond of them, obviously. If you didn't like them, you wouldn't be able to spend that length of time in their company. So uh, I find it's always a a great pleasure for me to go back to uh, my meetings, my annual meeting with Mara Matsui and her friends. Uh, That book wasn't written all that long ago. It was written this year. I tend to write my books um, not all that far in advance of publication. I know most, most publishers require you to write a book two years before they actually publish it. But that, that's not the case uh, with, with, with my books. I, so that book I finished, I think, in um, uh, April uh, or even May. And uh, so then it, it's, it's now been published. So there's only a period of about six months between finishing and... and it's not a long um, editorial process then for them. It's, it's no. not. It's, it's a very, very fast editorial process. It's all lined up. I complete the manuscript and it goes straight to the editor and it comes back usually within a few days. And then it goes to the copy editor mm-hmm. and it comes back in a few days and the proofs are, are dealt with uh, with the same dispatch. So um, no, that, that's all. That all is very quick. Well, as as listeners will be familiar with the there's the obviously the central characters that are known and loved, and there are a number of subplots. But they're probably mm. the leading the leading mystery or challenge for for the ladies is is about an elephant, hence the title. Yes. And I wondered whether it had been inspired by your own 
experience of ivory poaching and slaughter of, of animals in Africa? Yes, I, I've, I've been involved with various charities that are working against the uh, destruction of um, uh, the, the, the animals of Africa and, and wild, wild places of Africa. And uh, so, uh, like everybody else, I'm concerned about what is happening to many uh, species. That particular uh, issue of the um, elephants, I have had some involvement in the past with elephant uh, charities and indeed with um, an organization that looks after rhinos as well. There's a rhino in uh, Botswana who's named after Maharamatsui. Um, and uh, obviously, I'm interested in that issue as well about how we uh, protect the world's re remaining rhinoceroses from from slaughter and for reasons of human vanity, which applies also to elephants. Uh, and some some time ago, uh, last year or the yes, probably about 18 months ago, I was in Botswana in the northern part of Botswana in the Okavanga Delta. I was at Morang Airport there and. Uh, getting into the plane, I noticed there was this um, American woman being said goodbye to by various wildlife people, and I wondered what her story was. Because I find that when I'm in a public place, I look around and I, I suppose this is uh, um, being a novelist, one, one looks at people and wonders what, what their mm -hmm. background is, what, what their hopes and fears are. And uh, I ended up uh, just by chance sitting next to this, uh, this lady in the airplane, and um, week of talking and I discovered that she was she'd set up a, a sanctuary for baby elephants in Botswana and she was going back to Texas where she lived and uh, she told me all about it and it's a very interesting story uh, what happens there of course the poachers come and they shoot the mother elephant and the baby the calf often very small is left there and this poor creature just doesn't know what's happened the mother's lying there and just hangs about and of course will die of dehydration quite soon mm -hmm. or fall victim to predators and so they they rescue these baby elephants and put them in a sanctuary and uh, bring them up and they uh, intend to release them into uh, a herd or to create a herd for them later on now this is a relatively recently founded elephant sanctuary but there are older ones where they've actually successfully moved the elephants on to an existence in the wild after having given them a secure childhood and it's a it's a lovely a lovely idea and i decided to write about it in this latest maramatsui book she deals with the case of a baby elephant that's been orphaned in this way and uh, um, things were come to a happy conclusion they certainly uh, do uh, obviously so it's it's a it's a very interesting um story the story of um uh, the elephants in, in, in Botswana. And uh, your own reading, um, I, I know that because I've done a little bit of research that you've been, you've sort of formed an informal book book group with some, some friends and some colleagues, um, used Zoom to connect with people to discuss, is it just poetry or books as well? Just poetry. Yes. Just poetry. Just poetry. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't mind me being a bit, little bit nosy, I was wondering whether <laughs> this works in a way that you, it's sociable, you sort of decide that you're going to convene at a certain time and then people spontaneously share what they've been reading over the last week or fortnight or whether it's a little bit more disciplined than that and you've all got your homework to do where you need to read and prepare and consider poems and then discuss them together. 
Yes, it's a, it's a bit more disciplined. I, I, I think that if we didn't have structure, it would uh, end up being a, a very general discussion, often about things, not just poetry. Well, that, that's what book groups tend to do, in my experience. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's right. That's why I think some book groups have a very firm rule that there's no catering, that you aren't allowed to produce cake or, Wine. or whatever. <laughs> then you end up just uh, having a good feast. So we, we meet at the same time each week, virtually. Um, there are five or six of us uh, will meet. And uh, we have had um, homework sent to us. Um, a couple of poems, usually two or three poems that we read and then we discuss. So that works very well. It's, it's a very good. Uh, and our discussions are most enjoyable, most enjoyable. And have you been introduced through your friends to different poets that you were unaware of that, or you, that you weren't familiar with their work who you now admire more? Yes, I think we've all, we've all had our poetic um, horizons expanded uh, through this. Uh, we're fortunate in that um, the discussions led by a friend of mine who's a professor of English, who was a professor of English, now retired, uh, at a French university. And uh, so he's a particular expert in poetry of the Romantic era. And so we get, we're introduced to, uh, to poems of that nature that we wouldn't otherwise necessarily read every day. So uh, we've, we've gone back to Coleridge, for example, uh, we've, we've gone back to a number of uh, poets that, that we probably last read at school uh, and then um, uh, and, and found so so much satisfaction in reading a piece of Wordsworth, for example. Mm -hmm. Because these days, I suppose, many people don't necessarily go back to those, those poets. But we've varied that and we have modern uh, poetry as you well. You look at the contemporary poets as well. Well, yes, um, not not many absolutely contemporary, but certainly 20th century poets. So obviously, whenever I have a chance, I put in a bit of Auden. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sometimes my, my friends say, oh, you've prescribed um, more yards of Auden. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I, will, I will do that. But we'll, we'll, we'll have uh, poets of the, of the mid 20th century, late 20th century as well. I'm not, I, I imagine that we may well have some absolutely contemporary poets in, in due course. At the moment, we're drawing on material that we're, we're familiar with. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's, it's gr a great um, institution, our Tuesday morning poetry uh, meeting. We, we look forward to it with, with um, great anticipation, as people do of their book groups. Book groups are marvelous. Marvellous thing, absolutely marvellous thing. I think it's a great pity that there aren't more men in book groups, that more men don't have book groups. I think um, men are missing something really wonderful there because a uh, book group is not only a great institution of friendship, it's a wonderful way of, of supporting the novel. I think the contemporary novel uh, wouldn't be in... Uh, quite as strong a place as it is at the moment if it weren't for the fact that book book groups are going out and buying copies yep. of the books. <clears throat> so it's, it's a lovely form of support for literature. So is there a, a, a recent reading discovery that you've particularly enjoyed and would recommend other people, other readers to source, yes. to go out and find? Yes, I, I, I'm always discovering um, new books. I, I, I buy a lot of books 
and uh, so books are coming into the house. Do you like hardbacks or paperbacks? Uh, uh, both. Uh, both. I, I'm, I'm very. I, I like buying uh, hard, uh, hardbacks. I just um, ordered the other day and and received uh, yesterday uh, Robert McCrum's uh, book uh, on Shakespeare um, called Shakespearean on life and language in times of disruption, and that I think is yes just published this year. So I've just started that and looking forward to that very uh, very much. And then there's another remarkable book. Uh, that I recently found out about. And that is a book called uh, The Madman's Library by Edward Brooke Hitching, The Madman's Library, uh, the subtitle being The Strangest Books, Manuscripts, and Other Literary Curiosities from History. And it is an absolutely wonderful book, all about these really, really odd books uh, from all corners of the world uh, with details about from the earliest books to more recent books and, and indeed manuscripts, things about the largest book in the world and the smallest books in the world, miniature books, illuminated manuscripts, uh, books uh, written in code, um, beautifully designed. That sounds fascinating. Is it, as, is it illustrated? It's beautifully yeah. illustrated. It, it's wonderfully uh, illustrated. It's one of the most beautiful books that has been published for a long, long time. It's absolutely marvellous. Uh, so well, getting, that sort of book, that. getting that sort of book uh, gives one a great sense um, of, I suppose, it's right, like getting a lovely big box of chocolates. Uh, you can delve into it and pick the ones with the centres that you like. Uh, it's, it's, it's terrific. And, and it's marvellous that people are still writing lovely books like that and that publishers are still producing these, these be beautiful books and that people who said, well, electronics would spell the death of the book. Um, no, they, they, they were wrong, thank heavens. Uh, the book is still uh, there with us. There's no substitute for it. Uh, by all means, if your Kindle helps and you like reading on Kindle, that's absolutely fine. Or if you like listening to audiobooks, I, I enjoy audiobooks uh, very much in, indeed. Those are all um, perfectly perfectly uh, respectable ways of enjoying literature. But uh, at the end of the day, um, the greatest pleasure is to have a beautifully printed book, a beautifully made book. Um, it's such a gorgeous experience. Well, I, I know you have a number, a large number of, of books in your home, but if there was, and I'm going to pretentiously call it your library, and mm -hmm. I wondered if some horrible um disaster were to come upon it and uh, you had to save only one, whether you would be able to select one to keep, to save, to rescue? Yes, I, th I think that, that obviously there'd be many books that I'm very fond of in my, my library uh, that I would be able to replace. Um, so, uh, I'm fond of the content. Yeah. Uh, so I might have been tempted to say, well, I, I, I'd rush and get a copy of um, Auden's collected shorter poems. But if I were to think of things that I couldn't replace, I would go for my two-volume uh, edition of Kay's Edinburgh Portraits. Kay was a, um, an uh, Edinburgh um, artist who, who observed the city uh, in the early 19th century. And it's uh, just wonderful to, to see his, 
his gorgeous his gorgeous illustrations of Edinburgh characters and Edinburgh scenes. Well, I'll let you have two two volumes then. I'll let you save two books. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's very kind, Sarah. Thank you very much indeed. And if you, if you allowed me a third, I'm sure I'd find a third. In fact, really, I would ask you to say um, which 500 would I take? Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and fi- final question, because I've taken up a lot of your time and I'm sure you've got some some writing to do and some reading to do, but... You, you've been in Edinburgh and it's clearly a, a city that's close to your heart. But I wondered whether that's where you, you've been happily locked down or whether your heart has somehow wished it to be elsewhere at times. And would you mind telling listeners where that would be? Well, I think that uh, I've, been, I've been perfectly content in, in Edinburgh during, uh, during the lockdown, indeed during the sort of part, part lockdown that we uh, are having at the moment. And so I'm, I'm um, happy enough with, with that. We're very fortunate. We've got a garden, so we can get get out into the into the garden, which I think is a is a great uh, is a great consolation. Uh, but if I were to think somewhere else, I probably would uh, think of a place over on the uh, west coast of Scotland uh, that I'm very familiar with, uh, where when I wake up in the morning, I look out of the window, and there is the the, the sea loch, um, right in front of the window, it comes to within 20 feet of the house. Or if the tide is out, the deer might be walking across. That the sounds beautiful. Marsh in front of us. And where, um, if I opened the window, I would hear the waterfall, which falls down the mountain just to the side. And uh, if anybody's going to be locked up, I would have thought that's a good place to, to, to be or lockdown, rather, that would be a good place to be. Well, thank you very much for sharing all that information and insight into your library collection and to talking to me about these lovely four books. They're all going to be on sale on our website, and I know that you've very kindly offered to sign sign those copies of the books personally for the, for the readers. So thank you. Oh, yes. Thank you, and I wish you a very happy weekend. Stay safe. Thank you very much indeed, Sarah. Thank you. If listening to this podcast has inspired you to read the book, I'm sure you'll be able to borrow it from your local library. And if you would like to buy a copy, I hope you'll support your local indie bookshop. But if you'd like to buy a personalised copy, which has been signed by the author for your own library or as a gift for someone else, then I invite you to visit the podcasts page of our website, booksupnorth.com, where you can read more about the book, the author and the other featured titles we discussed, as well as place your order for a personalised copy of the book. Please be aware that the opportunity to buy a personalised copy is for a limited period only. The podcast page on our website contains all the further information you need about this bespoke service, which we hope goes some way to compensate for the fact that it's not possible to meet my guests face-to-face at this time. Thanks for listening in, fellow bookworms. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. Books for Your Library is a Books Up North production and is brought to you by Anchor FM. Anchor FM.